This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi everyone and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall and Wilcox. My name is Mark Dunphy and I'm a partner in the Employment and Workplace Relations team at Hall and Wilcox. Today I'm joined by my friend and colleague Christopher Kuna-Singham who is a special counsel in our Employment and Workplace Relations team. And today we're going to be discussing Christopher's uh, main topic of work that he undertakes at Hall and Wilcox and that is uh, migration. Um, we've had a migration practice at Hall and Wilcox now for a number of years, and it's worked into quite um, evolved into quite a substantial practice. And I've got to say that from when um, COVID first hit and um, borders were closed, I was you know concerned as to what Chris was going to be doing for a while. At working very closely with him, I've certainly made the observation he's been anything but quiet, and he's been really busy. So I'd like to kick things off. Chris, by saying what happens in a migration practice when the planes stop landing and what's been keeping you busy? Thanks, Mark. Thanks for that introduction. And uh, it was certainly a concern for, for me as well when, when borders closed up, whether we would get people into the country, what was going to happen to the practice and how it was going to affect our clients and, and their ability to attract people to the country. So um, what we noticed was firstly in sort of the month of April and May when the pandemic started heading up um, or started getting out of control was those who were in the select few countries were sort of being blocked out from entering Australia. Back then it was China, Korea, Iran and Pakistan at that stage. And then it sort of flowed on to the whole world. Everyone else outside of Australia was being prevented to come in at that point in time. Um, and then that was the lead on effect to, okay, if people are not allowed in, uh, what's going to happen to migration in Australia? Well, from it, we sort of noticed that the government became a bit more sensible in their approach. They said, generally, it's close to everyone, but if you fall within an exempt category, and they sort of broke that out. They said, you know, people in the healthcare industry, infrastructure, defense and a few others were given an exemption to come into the country despite borders being closed to many. So then we had clients in that space who um, were in need of people and continued to be in need of people to come out to Australia and there was work from that. Uh, and also there was a instruction put in to prevent people from leaving the country. So an Australian citizen or permanent resident was then told until today that they can't leave the country unless they sought permission to do so. Uh, and then that sort of opened up a new stream of work for us. We essentially started helping people get out of the country for various reasons, whether that be for business, personal, or family reasons. We, we had a new stream of work from that uh, and to advise clients on what the rules were about trying to get out of Australia. Now, we foresee that continuing. The government has indicated that they will probably start easing that up by November of this year. And I suspect we'll have a better conversation about it as we go. But that's a, that was how the, the, the practice was at the start of COVID and then how eventually it sort of kept us busy. Okay, great. And I'm interested, Chris, before we talk about where we're up to right now, um, did other countries institute similar policies to Australia or was Australia, because of its 
geographic location and its isolation able to do something that others didn't do? That, that's a good question. It's something we, we examined when we were going through this crisis at the start of it. Certain countries did take a very similar approach as Australia. Taiwan immediately comes to mind. South Korea also comes to mind. And these, I guess, are countries where they're, in our observation, have a higher compliance rate, where the government sort of provides a directive and many of its people sort of adhere to it with the intention that it's for the greater good. China also had their similar policies, but what we understood was it applied to different regions within China itself. So it was broken down to say where the pandemic sort of uh, allegedly occurred or started and different parts of China where it was starting to get out of control. But you're right in saying that it could also be Australia's geographic advantage or disadvantage, depending how you want to look at it. Um, in countries, say, uh, in U Europe, for example, and, and Africa and parts of the Middle East, it's a bit more difficult to sort of close their borders up and restrict movement within different countries just because it's the way it's been accepted. It's the way many of their policies out there are drafted. So there were some countries who went hard, as Australia did. We've no observed since then that many of these countries have opened up and, and I think Australia is just uh, uh, playing catch up to that and we'll probably be in that position very shortly. But there were a few countries who were as stringent as Australia was. Thanks, Chris. That then brings me to where we're at now and particularly as we're evolving down the roadmaps that we have federally and for our different states as to when restrictions are going to change, including those relating to travel. I guess I'm interested, and I think our listeners would be interested in where we're currently at with regard to restrictions and where that's likely to move to. And from, and I ask that question, mate, from a, the point of view of both Australians and also non-Australians trying to come into Australia. So, so I guess from an Australian citizen's perspective, when, and I include permanent residents under this category as well, if you were to leave the country, in essence, you need to apply for permission to get out of the country. And the threshold is pretty difficult at the moment. Um, it's the cases we come across uh, involve individuals who need to travel because of urgent work. Uh, if they have a family member who's not doing well, and that family member definition tends to sort of limit itself to, say, parents and children. It doesn't extend to aunts, uncles, cousins kind of a category. It's, it's pretty limited. Um, and, and so if you sort of fall under one of these very uh, rigid categories, uh, the government will then allow you permission to leave the country. That's if you're here and you're an Australian citizen, again, looking to fly out. Having said that, once you're outside of the country, there's nothing which prevents you from returning. Uh, but you will have to undertake that hotel quarantine. And if you flip that question then to say, what if I'm not an Australian citizen and you're out here, um, there is nothing which prevents you from leaving the country, but your complication is when you're coming back to Australia, you need to apply for an exemption to get back in. And again, that exemption can be equally as difficult. They're, the government sort of saying, we're not allowing any person back in, you have to fall within our exemption guidelines. And again, this goes back to our earlier point. It has to be someone who works in one of these um, uh, industries, which are sort of seeing some demand, defense, health, 
infrastructure falls under that category. And so it's it's tricky right now when we advise clients, we have to first understand what's their visa status, the type of role they do, how needed they are in Australia, what disruptions could potentially happen if that person is not yet, and then we advise them accordingly. So so right now there is a lot of blockage in, if, if that's the right term, whether a person can leave or enter the country. Then you, you asked the question about where will it evolve to? Well, I think in uh, the government sort of saying towards the end of 2021, they said November, but I'm, I'm sort of saying to our clients probably towards the end of the year instead, so maybe December, uh, we're probably seeing an, an, a lo- an ease of that restriction, meaning if you are vaccinated, that seems to be the main point as well. You have to be vaccinated. She will be allowed to travel out of the country and return and undertake hotel, uh, sorry, you undertake home quarantine instead of hotel quarantine. Now, uh, the, the specifics of that have not been released and it's hard at this stage to give further guidelines, but just looking at what other countries are doing with this point, I would speculate that you have to be vaccinated when you're coming back in, you have to be vaccinated and you have to be traveling through a low risk country. And the government probably come up with a guideline about which countries uh, are deemed low risk countries, which have a lower sort of daily infection rate will probably fall under that category. Singapore, Hong Kong, Israel comes to mind. And if you travel in from these countries, you'll probably be allowed to do your, your home quarantine. Some countries say seven days, some 14, we could end up in between that. So we're still waiting on, on, on further guidelines on that. And then if you were to travel, say, from a higher risk country, if you were to be unvaccinated for whatever reason, and interestingly, it could be, an, be another scenario where if you obtained a vaccine, but it's not recognized by the TGA out here in Australia, um, that you could potentially also have to undertake the hotel quarantine. So that's, that's another dynamic we're watching as well, whether that vaccine the person has uh, been given or taken whether that's recognized by the Australian government and whether there are certain rules around that. So by end of the year, we expect an ease up. Well, we anticipate to see more people flying in and out of the country. It's something we'll just have to monitor and, and share with our audience once we have further insight on that. It's interesting you say, Chris, about the, uh, the recognition of vaccines because on an outward basis, that's something that's going to, or an issue that is still unresolved for many of Australians. And for instance, I'm aware that the US has yet to approve AstraZeneca as an approved vaccine. So until they do that, there's going to be a limitation on many of us travelling there. Um, I'm interested, though, Chris, um, before we move on, you talk about the ability for Australians uh, to come back to Australia still at the moment and for non-Australians with an exemption to come back. There's been a lot of publicity about the difficulty of of flights being available to people. I'm interested in what your experience has been with our clients um, in that space. Has it been consistent with the negative publicity or has it have flights, do you think, been perhaps easier to, uh, to come by? That's a good question, Mark, because that's a question which had sort of propped up in 2020, right? Sort of mid-2020 when um, the government sort of closed borders up and told everyone to get back as soon as possible. We'll, we'll provide a few more additional flights and we'll try and get as many back in. Uh, and, and at the same time, we were then sort of seeing from our clients that they were still able to secure flights and not, and it wasn't 
supporting this uh, media argument or this media um, um, play up where there were 30, 40,000 Australians stranded overseas. And then when we, when we started digging further, we realized that it had to do largely with the cost of returning to Australia. So it's not that they were stranded because there were no flights, in our opinion. It was most of them stranded because of the cost involved in traveling back to Australia. So that would include the, the flights itself, as well as the, quarant- the hotel quarantine cost involved. And that could be a very, very large number. I had a client who wanted to travel from the U.S. Uh, two weeks out from when they first contacted us. The only flights available were business class, and it was close to 17000 per person. So they were able to get the flight. They were able to afford the flight. Uh, but that, that is the issue, in our opinion. It's, it's not, not so much the numbers, but it's the cost involved in getting back. Now, as so if we allow more people back into the country if there is no need for everyone to then undertake the hotel quarantine if they can quarantine at home that would then lead on to more airlines plowing the 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 route itself and i think that would then lead to a lower cost uh, for tickets and then that would encourage more people to come back you would be able to sympathize chris with those flying at the front end of the plane which Mm. is normally where you're at i think (laughs) any any given day mark <laughs> um, moving on, Chris, there's um, this debate, given the number of people coming into Australia has slowed to a mere trickle compared to what it has been, there's been some commentary on whether that has been a good thing for our economy. Um, there's been plenty of contrary um, commentary on whether it's a bad thing and that has had a dramatic income on the sorry, impact on the number of people available with a trickle-down effect for uh, for hospitality jobs and the like. I'm interested in your view about the, uh, the debate, the population debate um, in Australia and whether you think that we should take advantage of this pause perhaps to re-look at our program and reshape the numbers of people we bring into the country in a positive way or in a negative way. And I, and I follow that with a lot of interest as well. I, I have a very open mind about how these things uh, play out. I, I see the argument for arguing for a slowdown in migration. And to me, some of those points do make sense. I, I think when we live the life we've come to know and it starts changing. And what I mean by that is when we start seeing public infrastructure sort of getting uh, being put through a strain housing costs going up, living expenses going up, and it's all the result of a larger population pool. I do I do understand, I do sympathize, and I do see the argument why we should try and limit the numbers to Australia. Um, at the same time, we do speak with our clients every day. Um, and, and at Holland Wilcox, we, we work with all kinds of clients, small businesses, medium, large, in, all, in a variety of industries, um, from hospitality to sciences to biotech to the mining industry. Um, All of them seem to report to us a similar issue. That is, skilled people are difficult to find. And when they say skilled, it's skilled in their own industry. So at the same time, while there is this uh, populist move to try and limit the number of people coming to Australia, and again, I understand why that is the case. I think in reality, it's a very hard ask 
for policymakers and employers if they need to progress, if they need to grow, if they need to, to generate revenue, if there is that gap in their um, workforce and they can only locate it from someone who is not an Australian citizen, they will go down the pathway of trying to get that person a visa to Australia. Um, and bear in mind, it's, it's, not a, it's not a problem unique to Australia. Most developed countries go through this issue as well, this debate about whether we should upskill our local talent versus importing talent. Um, and we actually compete with countries like the US, UK, Canada for talent. Um, and these countries all have a similar problem, inverted commas, I'll say problem, as Australia, where it's all about attracting the right person. So again, I do understand where it's coming from, but in reality, listening to what our clients tell us, I think it's going to be a very difficult ask to try and reduce or close the migration system or the, our sort of need to get skilled people to Australia. Thanks, Chris. Looking forwards to the inevitable um, situation we're facing soon when the borders will be reopened, whether that's in November, December or early next year, is the government talking about who they will allow into the country first? So is it going to be priorities of people who, um, who come in first or will it be essentially back to business as it was prior to borders being closed? And, and I, I'll take a jab at speculating on this, Mark. Um, I suspect it's probably going to be the ones uh, who are currently on a priority list of occupations who will be allowed first. So there are about 43 or so occupations in demand uh, who are allowed into the country. And these are mostly healthcare professionals, engineers, um, several of the accounting professionals as well allowed in. I think what will then happen is people in target industries, and these are industries Scott Morrison himself has uh, outlined, and these are, say, the resource industry, agriculture, energy, health, defense, uh, manufacturing. If you're being sponsored or you're going to be working in one of these industries, I think it's then going to be sort of the second batch of priority applications or people allowed back into the country. I, as much as possible, I think the government is cognizant about the fact that they don't want to just open up too quickly. And so they'll have a method in their madness. And that will be saying to us, we're going to prioritize people who are going to help us grow as quickly as possible out of this uh, pandemic. And because we've identified these particular industries, which need as many people as quickly as possible. We're going to try and help that process by pushing through anyone who is going to be working in these industries. So I think that will happen. That will probably take about, say, six months or so I anticipate to clear up. And where the six months come from? Uh, it's based on our daily interactions with our clients, how we feel. They tell us that they need people out here. And, and those six months on average is the time frame it takes for immigration to process an application, gather the documents and just get the visa for the individual. And I think after six months, we'll probably see a wider opening up of the visa system as well. So anyone outside of these target industries will then have their visas processed and then be able to come to Australia. And are you saying and hearing, Chris, that there's, there's, a, there's a pent up demand that's built up over the time that migration has not been allowed 
into Australia and there's going to be a flurry of activity by employers to, to get people to add to their workforce. That's certainly my sense, but I'm interested in whether that's what you're hearing from our clients. Sure. We've, we've heard that from the start of COVID, Mark, mid-COVID, and I like to say now we're almost at the end of restrictions. I'm not going to say the end of COVID, the end of these border restrictions, and we're hearing that. And the message has been consistent from the start that tell me when these borders open up because I need people in Australia to do these roles. It's more so now uh, towards this time of the year, especially as the government is starting to ramp up its announcements around borders opening up. So we we're definitely getting that query come up a lot more these days, but it was always a consistent theme from 2020, well, at the start of the pandemic in 2020, when people would say to us, how long are borders going to close up because I need my people out here as quickly as possible. So I, I definitely foresee pent up demand when borders open up, or even the moment we get a any announcement about when that will possibly happen, I think we're, we're going to see um, a good a good hit in, in, in people trying to get out to Australia. Yeah, that's my sense uh, as well. And there's going to be a real surge in global mobility for a while. Mm -hmm. um, well, Chris, I want to thank you for uh, being so candid in discussion of what's been going on in your practice for the last um, year and a half or so and your projection for what's going forward. I think that's really insightful and of great interest. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening to today's episode. Um, of Hall and Wilcox Smarter Lawcast, and again thank Chris um, for uh, for his time uh, and for answering the questions that we have um, in this space. If any of you listening have questions that you want to ask of Chris uh, or myself, then please contact us through our website hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us on LinkedIn. I'd also ask that if you enjoyed today's episode, can you please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes as they are rolled out. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.